This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, Indivisible's plans for 2020 and beyond. We talk with Indivisible's Director of Democracy Policy, Megan Hatcher Mays, about the many ways progressives can fight to restore our democracy once Trump and the GOP are out of power. And it all starts with filibuster reform. Every legislative item on the progressive agenda likely won't be possible without getting rid of the filibuster. This one little procedural rule is kind of keeping our government from functioning the way that it probably should. Even if Democrats have a majority and it's like 51-49, we still can't get anything done unless we pull over nine Republicans. And that's becoming less and less possible as conservatives become more and more partisan. Then, continuing our series of discussions from Indivisible's National Campaign Network, we have a conversation with Indivisible co-executive director Ezra Levin about the very real possibility of flipping his native state of Texas blue for the Democrats. I mean, I think if Texas flips blue, then that's the ball game for the presidency for an era. That's all coming up, so stay with us. So before we jump into this week's show, I want to briefly mention something that is happening next week. So as most of you know, next week is Indivisible's Week of Action to Defund Hate. And groups all over the country are going to be taking part in actions to push our members of Congress to vote to draw down the budgets for ICE and CBP in the upcoming budget vote for fiscal year 2020. And as part of this here on the West Coast, we are going to be taking part in a caravan that will be going from the Canadian border all the way down to the Mexican border to draw attention to this issue. So starting Saturday, September 7th, a banner will begin traveling south from Blaine, gathering signatures from Indivisible members and other affiliated groups. We are going to be making a number of stops here in Washington where people will come out, sign the banner, and also make videos for their members of Congress urging them to defund hate. We would love to see you guys all out there. I will mention that I personally will be bringing the banner to stops in Kirkland, Bellevue, Lakewood, Olympia, and Chehalis, And I will also be recording segments for the podcast with people who come out about why this issue is important to them. If you would like more information, shoot me an email at indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com for more details. I am so excited about this, and I really hope to see you out there. All right, now on with the show. This year, Indivisible has been formulating its plan for 2020 and beyond, and it goes basically like this. First, we do everything we can to weaken Trump and the GOP, including impeachment proceedings. We also work to push Democrats up and over in 2020 to retake the House, retake the Senate, and of course, win back the White House. And then the third step will be to reform our democracy, not just to undo the damage done by Trump and the Republicans, but also to address the more systemic problems that have resulted in an unjust system that currently only works for a small minority of wealthy Americans. So here to talk about a few of the ways that we can reform our democracy is Megan Hatcher Mays. She is Indivisible's Director of Democracy Policy, and we are so glad that she could join us. Hi, Megan. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. So there is a lot that Indivisible would like to do in the way of democracy reform, I know. And uh, you believe uh, the place to start is by getting rid of the legislative filibuster. And this is a tactic used in the Senate to prevent something from being brought to a vote. So if and when the Democrats, let's just say when the Democrats take the Senate in 2020, (laughs) uh, why is it important to get rid of the filibuster? Um, it's critical to get rid of the filibuster, uh, and I'm, we're not the only ones who think so, by the way. Uh, it's been used by both parties to prevent uh, legislation from going to the floor for a vote, but it's really been weaponized by the GOP to block 
uh, in the past, it's been used to block executive branch nom nominees, like the attorney general. Uh, it's been used to block judicial nominees, and Republicans have been using it to block a series of legislation that are priorities for progressives. So that includes gun safety legislation, that includes climate change uh, solutions, all stuff like that that we are all fighting for every day uh, is being blocked um, by the filibuster. Well, the bottom line with all of this is that nothing else will happen uh, unless the filibuster is gone, right? Uh, That's correct. The Green New Deal, Medicare for All, all of the big correct. ticket items just simply can't happen if the filibuster is in place, right? 100% correct. So even if we, and I like the way you framed it, when we win a trifecta <laughs> in 2020, so that's when we win back the White House, we win back uh, a majority in the Senate, and we keep the House, even when that happens, uh, Republicans in the minority can still block our legislation from going forward. Because at this point, the way um, kind of demographics work in this country, there's really not a clear path to Democrats getting 60 votes in the Senate probably ever again. And that is the number that you would need to end a filibuster. That's right. You need a supermajority, which is 60 senators voting to just allow an up or down vote on the legislation itself. So and it doesn't work kind of the way I think people think it works. Like it's not like a Mr. Smith goes to Washington situation where the person has to stand there for hours and hours and never see the floor to anybody else and read out of a cookbook and all that stuff. It's really just all they have to do is threaten to filibuster something. And that alone will keep a piece of legislation from going to the floor to a vote. So um, that 60 vote threshold is almost impossible to meet, especially as um, progressives kind of become more and more concentrated in a smaller number of states. And the conservative states that send just as many senators as the blue states do are becoming more and more partisan, more and more um, Trumpified, I guess you could say. They're, mm -hmm. less willing, <laughs> yeah, they're less willing to seek compromise, and they're more willing to block reasonable legislation from going forward because they basically tarred all of us as like socialists, right? So they never want to be seen as, uh, you know, rubber stamping the quote unquote socialist agenda. So it becomes very, very hard to get anything done. And I think we saw that uh, in the last few years of Obama's presidency, where um, we didn't have a majority in the Senate, but even things that like Republican voters care about weren't getting votes. It's a mess. It, it, it is the source of federal dysfunction. Just this one little procedural rule is kind of keeping our government from functioning the way that it probably should. Even if Democrats have a majority and it's like 51-49, that's a majority. We still can't get anything done unless we pull over nine Republicans. And that's becoming less and less possible as conservatives become more and more partisan. Right. And we will talk in just a second about how to address some of that imbalance in the Senate. But uh, recently, Mitch McConnell wrote an op-ed for The New York Times saying that Democrats would regret getting rid of the filibuster when Republicans take the Senate again in the future. What are your thoughts about what he had to say? Uh, so I loved that op-ed, I will say. I will admit I absolutely loved it because that op-ed was written in response to former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid's op-ed on the filibuster. Reid's op-ed was saying, if Democrats want to get anything done, you must get rid of the filibuster. And he called it a legislative graveyard. So it's a very kind of ironic phrase because Mitch McConnell has called himself the Grim Reaper of the progressive agenda. He has said if the Democrats win in 2020, he will serve as the Grim Reaper of the progressive agenda. Right. And the way he's going to do that is by using the filibuster. So it's kind of funny because he wrote this op-ed in response to Harry Reid, but he basically was making the same argument as Harry Reid, which is 
Democrats will not be able to get anything done if the filibuster is in place. His entire op-ed was about all of the ways that Republicans will stand athwart the progressive agenda. And the main way that they will do that is by invoking the filibuster. So he's saying, oh, you'll regret it if we get rid of it. And I'm telling you right now, Mitch McConnell would not waste a moment getting rid of the filibuster if it achieved his ends. So this is not a man who is um, beholden to norms or traditions. He's not particularly interested in governing. He's interested in entrenching as much power as possible. And I think we saw that when he held open that Supreme Court seat for over a year so that he could fill it with somebody handpicked by Donald Trump. So I don't think we should spend too much worrying about what Mitch McConnell will or won't do. I think we need to worry about what we can get done if we have a majority in the Senate, like enough is enough. Well, so let's talk about how we go about getting rid of this. So the filibuster is not prescribed in the Constitution. So procedurally, how do we do this? Easy. You just take a vote. Uh, So to get rid of the filibuster, you just need a a simple majority vote to get rid of it. Um, I think Republicans will be against it because the filibuster serves as a way for them to kind of uh, invoke minority rule. I think just to step back for a second, I think people really need to understand that these are a, a majority of senators representing a shrinking minority of the population. So most people live in like eight or nine states. Most of our of the American population lives in eight or nine states and the rest uh, is largely, largely rural areas. So those folks want to keep the filibuster because it gives them outsized power over um, the policies that we implement in the United States that would actually benefit the largest number of people. But there are some Democrats who are bad on this issue too because I think a lot of times on our side, we think we have sort of an aspirational view of the government and how it should work. And getting rid of norms can be challenging because we like to think of the government as something that should work if everyone is acting in good faith. But what we're dealing with right now, what I think some squishy Democrats need to understand is that we're not in a situation where we're dealing where the other side is dealing in good faith. Um, at all. So there's like one party that wants to govern, who's interested in governing and playing by the rules. And there's this other party who doesn't care about any of that. (laughs) So they're playing a completely different game. So it's time for us to look around and say, first of all, our side represents the overwhelming majority of the American population. Our ideas are broadly popular. We should be doing whatever it takes to enact those ideas. And that includes getting rid of the filibuster. So all they need to do is, let's say we get our trifecta in 2020, take a vote in the Senate, get 51 votes to abolish it, and it's gone. And then we can actually pursue, you know, some of the policy priorities that progressives care about. That's, we've already talked about some of them, Green New Deal, gun safety, uh, Medicare for all, LGBTQ anti-discrimination laws. Those are all um, on the slate if we win back the White House and the Senate in 2020. You mentioned that there are some Dems who are squishy on this. Is this going to be, in your mind, kind of a push to get uh, 51 Democrats on board? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when we are, um, you know, I think we're all watching the debates and seeing where candidates stand on things. And when we, there's some people in the race right now who don't want to get rid of it. So if they don't, I think the Follow-up question is, well, how are you going to get anything done? What are you going to do to bypass Mitch McConnell? Because he's already said, uh, you know, I've already noted this, he's said he's going to be the Grim Reaper, and he's going to use the filibuster as his weapon of choice. He's going to kill everything that we want to do. He's going to go, as Harry Reid said, to the legislative graveyard. So you need to have a plan to bypass Mitch McConnell. And, And if it's not the filibuster, then it has to be something else, because this idea of, oh, we're just going to return to, like, the Senate of yore, where we all 
you know, eat lunch and just discuss, <laughs> just sort of uh, d- debate the ideas of the day and come to some sort of conclusion. That is over. That ended when uh, Barack Obama was inaugurated. And um, the GOP's explicit goal is blocking progress. So then we start with getting rid of the filibuster. And this would clear the way for a long list of things that Indivisible would like to implement to reform our democracy. And I'd like to just talk about a couple of those things. The first is statehood for D.C. So when Indivisible polled its members about their priorities, this ranked right at the top. So apart from it being the right thing to do for the residents of D.C., talk about how this would help to change the balance, the the imbalance that you've talked about in the Senate. Yeah, so I talked already a little bit about how um, especially progressives are kind of concentrating in like big urban areas. And so we're kind of winnowing down to like eight or nine states and it'll probably get closer to seven or eight in the next couple of years. Uh, A lot of people think of D.C. as just kind of like the seat of the federal government, but it's actually 700,000 people live here. It's a big city. Not everybody who lives here works for the federal government. Um, although we do have a lot of lawyers. <laughs> um, and so so you're right. It's the right thing to do because 700,000 people who live in the United States of America have no voting representation in Congress whatsoever. And Congress can um, sort of interfere with our local affairs in ways they can't in the states. So they can block how we spend our money. And they have, in fact, blocked us from using our money to our locally raised tax dollars by the way, um, to commercialize marijuana. We had a ballot initiative to legalize marijuana. They don't let us use our money to provide um, reproductive health care services for low-income women, stuff like that. Uh, They can't do that with the states, but they do do it to us. How this fixes the Senate is it immediately enfranchises 700,000 people. And if we become a state, then we get two new senators. Yes, D.C. is largely uh, Democratic region. I think we went 93-6 for Hillary in 2016. So So it's pretty much a sure thing that there would be two extra Democratic uh, votes in the Senate. Yes. D.C. is pretty blue, and it's very likely that our senators would be Democrats. And that's the reason why Congress uh, has been hesitant to grant us statehood despite the unfairness. And there is a racial justice aspect to this as well, because D.C. has long been a minority majority district. Uh, We have a large African-American population. In fact, black folks have really built this city from the ground up since um, emancipation. And we have a very large uh, Latinx population here as well. And that is another large reason why um, D.C. has not been granted statehood. It's just racism, quite frankly. Um, But if we are able to become a state, there's a bill pending. Uh, we will get those two senators. They will very likely be Democrats. Um, A lot of people think that's like cheating, but that's not a reason not to grant statehood to states. You know, we wouldn't do this for a state that's largely red. In fact, that's why we granted statehood to a lot of southern states is because it was kind of a reliable pro-slavery conservative vote. And so um, one way to think of it is if D.C. had two Democratic senators, there'd be no Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court. Sure. There'd be no Betsy DeVos. Uh, the tax bill probably wouldn't have passed. And it's just a way to kind of offset how um, kind of a ideological minority in this country has overtaken the Senate by granting that same right to um, places that are bigger. You know, D.C. has more residents than Vermont. <laughs> right. We're almost we have almost as many as Alaska. 
So those places have two senators. We should have two senators too. And it's great for democracy because it provides just kind of an additional uh, protection from Mitch McConnell's worst impulses, I think. Something else that's being discussed is statehood for Puerto Rico. This would also ostensibly give two Democratic uh, votes in the Senate. Mm -hmm. Uh, What are Indivisible's thoughts on that? Well, we support self-determination for Puerto Rico and the um, the rest of the territories as well. I think uh, Puerto Rico is – the last time they took a vote, there wasn't a clear majority on whether they wanted to pursue statehood or something else, although they're, they have a non-voting delegate to Congress as well who has introduced a Puerto Rico statehood bill. Um, and their governor, who is now on the way out, was also pro-statehood, too. So I think that um, we and a lot of progressive organizations stand ready to support whatever you know whatever it is that they do decide for themselves. Statehood is a great option. It could be that they want independence instead. Right. It could be that they want to re- remain a territory. But I think that Trump, in a lot of ways, has kind of lit a fire in Puerto Rico. I mean, especially the, the way he handled um, disaster relief for the island after that big hurricane and the way he continues to antagonize their elected officials. Um, I think they started thinking really seriously about what's the best way to protect themselves from governmental interference that they witnessed firsthand after after the hurricane. So, so I think it's a big and important question, but I think it's one that Puerto Rico is still working out for themselves. At least that's my understanding of it. And um if they want to be a state, we're all in to help them achieve it. If they want something else, we're all in to achieve it for them as well. But either way, I question the logic of having um, kind of a group of territories that has no voting representation in Congress at all. I think regardless of whether or not they become a state, it's just wrong uh, that the non-voting dele- delegates from Guam and the other territories of Puerto Rico and our non-voting delegate uh, here in D.C., Eleanor Holmes Norton, who I used to work for, um, have basically no voting say uh, on bills that get passed in the United States Congress that affects their jurisdictions just the same that they affect every other state. So for sure, I mean, voting rights for all of those locations is critical. Whether or not that manifests as statehood or something else, I think, is, um, is, is up to them. Absolutely. So just one other item on Indivisible's uh, list of democracy reforms that I'd love to discuss with you, and that is court reform. So as we know, we have a conservative majority on the Supreme Court that may be in place for a generation, and Mm -hmm. Indivisible would like to potentially expand the number of justices on the court to balance this. And my first question on this is, do we worry about a race to the bottom here, where every time power shifts in D.C., the court just keeps expanding? Uh, yeah, I won't. I would not want to minimize anyone's fears about this issue. But here's how I think of it. I think of getting rid of the filibuster as kind of the start line, the starting line for fixing democracy, and I see court reform as the finish line. So we cannot, we can't cross the finish line unless we do something about not just the Supreme Court but our federal judiciary as a whole. Because you know, as I was talking about earlier. Trump hasn't gotten gotten a lot of legislative wins, but one thing he's been very successful at doing is stacking the courts, not just the Supreme Court, but all the way down uh, through the appellate courts and the district courts as well, yeah. with extremely conservative um, ideologues, folks who have been groomed from law school by kind of dark money, kind of shadowy groups like the Federalist Society and other groups. Because these guys are all sure things. They're all sure bets. They're for sure going to overturn Roe v. Wade. They're for sure going to protect the NRA. They are hostile to LGBTQ folks. 
they're hostile to minimum wage increases and corporate regulations, campaign finance, all stuff uh, that they will vote negatively on if it comes before them in court. So let's say we get our trifecta in 2020. We get rid of the filibuster. And this is a lot of work, by the way, convincing everybody to do this. Of course, winning the election is a big, is a lot of work. Convincing everybody to get rid of the filibuster is going to be a lot of work, although I'm sure that we will be successful in doing it. We pass a slate of progressive things like Green New Deal, Medicare for All, LGBTQ anti-discrimination protections, gun safety. We get, we get it all done with 51 votes, right? All of that. That entire agenda is going to the courts. Somebody is going to is going to bring a lawsuit and challenge that in the court. It'll probably be some Republican attorney general from Texas or something. And they will take that to the federal courts and they will challenge it. Those things will all make their way up to the Supreme Court. And then what? We did all that work just to have it overturned by five conservative men on the Supreme Court. By the way, four out of the five conservatives were nominated by a president who lost the popular vote. So this is an institution that stands athwart democracy. It is itself an anti-democratic institution because all of the justices are relatively insulated from like political considerations, but they also, as a body, hinder democratic participation. They have struck down the Voting Rights Act. They have said that they're not going to weigh in on partisan um, gerrymandering. They have upheld strict voter ID laws. So these are all things that hinder participation in democracy. So I think the way to think of it is you have to do something about that in order to expand access to democracy. And the more people who participate in democracy, the less likely you're going to have a situation where power keeps shifting back and forth between between parties. So this, this is absolutely the reason why we need to do this. I, now, the number of Supreme Court justices isn't prescribed in the Constitution. I, I think the uh, original configuration with seven justices with one chief justice. So how mm-hmm. would we expand the number? Yeah, so it would it can be done through like statehood and like a lot of the other things that we want to accomplish, uh it can be done through simple legislation. So the constitution just says that you can serve on the Supreme Court for as long as you're in good behavior, which a lot of people take to mean uh for life unless you're impeached. You can impeach Supreme Court justices. Uh, so you can expand the number of seats through um, legislation, and that's how it's been done in the past. Or it, sometimes it's been less than what's described because of uh, attrition, I guess you could say. So we could um, we could just increase the number. You could increase the number to um, 11. You could increase it to 13. Um, there are some groups that think you can deal with term limits through legislation as well. But the, our, the Supreme Court is really not just about Trump. I mean, this is like a 20-year-long, at least, problem where, you know, 20 years ago in Bush v. Gore, the conservatives of the court handed the presidency to the guy that lost. Right. So this we should have been fighting this fight for the last 20 years, at least. So we're, as an, as an organization, agnostic about what exactly the solution to the problem is, but the candidates must, 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 must have some sort of plan for dealing with the Supreme Court and the judiciary as a whole, because the current makeup is not going to uphold the majority of our agenda. They just aren't. So whether that's adding seats or something else, I'm not sure. But doing nothing really isn't an option. Well, you've talked about the partisan nature of how these judges are selected, and uh, certainly their backgrounds uh, have borne that out. Indivisible is calling for a less partisan process for selecting and appointing judges. What would that look like in your mind? 
I think there's a couple ways you could go about it. One is actually, uh, I think there's an argument to be made to be made that term limits in and of themselves would reduce the partisanship in the selecting process because every president would get, depending on how you do the math, every president would get at least like two picks in their term because people would be constantly cycling off the court. So um, it would be less fraught probably because everyone would know, well, hey, we don't get this one, but we're for sure going to get two next time. This idea of justices having to retire or choosing to retire under certain presidencies kind of injects a lot of um, partisanship into the process as well. So term limits theoretically would address both of those problems. Um, another plan that kind of has gotten mixed reviews, uh, Mayor Pete has one about like kind of a commission sort of thing where <laughs> it's like 555, where there's five Democratic picks, five Republican picks, and then those 10 pick the remaining five. Um, not totally sure that that's constitutional, but in theory, that solves the partisanship issue as well. Uh, I think the other thing, too, is um, the process itself should probably be more fair. There should be some sort of timeline. <laughs> I mean, I think we saw with Kavanaugh that they really rushed through the summer to get him confirmed. And then all this stuff kind of came up in the fall about his background and some of the, the very credible accusations that have been made against him. Right. There was a better, uh, more codified timeline for how this stuff is done, like getting people's documents. Uh, that would probably make it less partisan, too. Um, but yeah, there's lots of things that we, that we can do to fix the issue. There's lots of procedural things that Democrats can do to make sure that their picks are actually making their way onto the bench, because under Obama, McConnell was very successful in blocking most of his judicial nominees. So I think that going back to playing by the rules under the next Democratic president is also not an option. Well, like I said, there is just so much that is on the table in terms of democracy reform from fighting racial and partisan gerrymandering to expanding access to voting, public funding for elections, so much more. Uh, listeners can read all about Indivisible's plans for democracy reform at Indivisible.org. Megan Hatcher Mays is Indivisible's Director of Democracy Policy. Megan, it has been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Next, a few weeks back, over 300 indivisible leaders from across the country gathered in D.C. for the very first National Campaigns Network to talk about plans for 2020 and beyond, some of which you just heard laid out by Megan Hatcher Mays. It was a great opportunity to talk about what is happening across the country and to get a sense of some of the political shifts and groundswells that are occurring. One of the more exciting discussions was around the prospect of the state of Texas flipping for the Democrats. I wanted to get a sense of where this is right now and about what we can be doing to help this along. And so I spoke about it with Indivisible co-founder and Texas native Ezra Levin. You're from Texas, right? I'm from Texas. I grew up in Buda, Texas. Okay, so you're the perfect person to ask this question okay. of talk about the impact of flipping Texas blue for the Democrats. I mean, I think if Texas flips blue, then that's the ball game for the presidency for an era. They are not going to be able to make up the electoral votes by picking up any other states. It's just too big of a state for them to make up. So it's huge. It's, it's an earthquake. Uh, it will be a monumental shift in what politics looks like, not just in Texas, but in the country. And that's going to be something that's going to have to be maintained, of course. It is, but I believe that once we are actually able to elect a statewide Democrat in Texas, that is going to have long-term impacts. Keep in mind, we have not elected a statewide Democrat in over a quarter century. It's been over a quarter century, but we have the opportunity to. And once we do, I think that sets us up in a really good place. 
So what in your mind needs to shift right now? What's already shifting? Well, so what has been shifting in part is people are starting to get active again. I think the 2016 election was a shock to most people. Uh, but if you look at the turnout across the country, Texas was closer than Ohio was. Trump won Texas by less than what he won Ohio by. So Texas is this new opportunity. And the fact that a whole bunch of folks in Indivisible and elsewhere got active after 2016 was huge. That is changing the political landscape. And I think Beto in his Senate race in 2018 did a great job of pulling new people in, not just in uh, the city centers, not just in uh, San Antonio and Houston and Austin and Dallas, but throughout the state. Uh, Texas is a very diverse state. It's really several different states combined into one. East Texas is way different than South Texas, which is different than the Panhandle, which is different than West Texas. You got to organize throughout, but we're seeing that happen. We're seeing uh, in congressional districts that traditionally have gone Republican forever, we're seeing them become actually flippable. Uh, and that's new. That's new. So that is happening. None of this is automatic, though. I do not, I, I far from it. It is going to take a lot of work between now and then to get it done. And so one of the things we want to see is not just how are we going to win in November 2020, but how are we pulling people out now? Because the same people who come out against abortion bans or voter suppression in 2019, these are going to be the people knocking on doors, making calls, sending texts in 2020. Demographics gets talked about a lot, yeah. the shifting demographics, not just in Texas, but across the, the nation. Yeah. How much of that do you see as a factor for Texas going blue? Well, I think it's a big factor. I mean, Texas is uh, on the, the forefront of demographic change in the country. Texas is increasingly diverse. It's going to become a uh, minority, majority country, uh, state faster than um, other states in the country. And the country as a whole is diversifying. It's also in response to that, we're seeing Republican tactics in Texas similar to what we're seeing at the national level in other states, which is these Republicans see the country and in Texas, the state, getting more diverse and more unequal. And their response to that is not to moderate their policies. It's not to reach out to these communities that are changing, um, uh, changing the state. It's to systematically disenfranchise them, to systematically ensure that government in Texas does not respond to their will. We have to overcome that. And the only way to fix our democracy in Texas is to out organize them and to ensure that the democracy in Texas does indeed reflect the will of that changing electorate. And do you see the battleground taking place in the suburbs around major cities like Houston, like Dallas? I think it's everywhere. I think you've got to run up the score in Houston. You've got to run up the score in Austin and Dallas and San Antonio, but you've got to get folks out in the valley too, in the, uh, near the border. You've got to get folks out in, uh, in El Paso. You've got, to, you've got to lower the extent to which they're running up the score in places like the Panhandle or in, in rural places. So it's not enough just to get people out in Houston. It's not enough just to get people out in Austin. That's important. But we got to be organizing everywhere. Texas is a big state. What can people who are not in Texas, what would you like to see indivisibles who are not in Texas helping to support this in some way? So I would highly recommend people organize where they are. I think that's where the strength of indivisible is. I know there is an urge to look at the targets of like certain swing states or battlegrounds, but fundamentally indivisible is a movement of constituents. And your legitimacy comes from focusing on your senators, your representative, your state elected officials. So although we do set up at the national level ways for indivisible groups from outside states to, to funnel in if they have excess capacity, first and foremost, the best thing you can do is organize on your home turf. 
And then finally this week, I want to bring your attention to something that you can weigh in on. So last week, Indivisible Tacoma joined with 18 area tribes along with a number of local and statewide organizations to testify in front of the Puget Sound Clean Air Agency to deny a permit to Puget Sound Energy to build and operate a fracked liquid natural gas plant at the Port of Tacoma. This plant would be built on ancestral tribal waters, and it is also subject to flooding and, of course, earthquakes, and it's near a very highly populated community, as well as an incarcerated population who, of course, would be unable to evacuate in the event of an emergency. Public comments are still active on this, and members of Indivisible Tacoma are encouraging people to weigh in against the building of this plant. I have a link for people to do just that, as well as a link to State Senator Jeannie Darnielle's full testimony about this in front of the agency at indivisiblepodcast.org. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you missed anything, if you want to catch up on past shows, if you would like links to the things that we talked about, you can find all of that and more at indivisiblepodcast.org. And you can subscribe to the show there, too. If you would like to get in touch, and I would love it, the email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc., and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Our associate producer, is Charlotte Gittleman. Thank you again to my guest, Megan Hatcher-Mays. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. <laughs>